God's word. Zedekiah was 21 years old when he became king, and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Hamutal, the daughter of Jeremiah of Libna, and he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, according to all that Jehoiakim had done. For because of the anger of the Lord, it came to the point in in Jerusalem and Judah that he cast them out from his presence. And Zedekiah rebelled against the king of Babylon. And in the ninth year of his reign, in the tenth month, on the tenth day of the month, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came with all his army against Jerusalem and laid siege to it. And they built siege works all around it. So the city was besieged until the eleventh year of King Zedekiah. On the ninth day of the fourth month of the famine, the, the famine was so severe in the city that there was no food for the people of the land. Then a breach was made in the city, and all the men of war fled and went out from the city by night, by the way of a gate, between two walls, by the king's garden. And the Chaldeans were around the city, and they went in the direction of the Arabah. But the army of the Chaldeans pursued the king and overtook Zedekiah in the plains of Jericho, and all his army was scattered from him. Then they captured the king and brought him up to the king of Babylon at Riblah in the land of Hamath, And he passed sentence on him. The king of Babylon slaughtered the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes and also slaughtered all the officials of Judah at Riblah. And he put out the eyes of Zedekiah and bound him in chains. And the king of Babylon took him to Babylon and put him in prison till the day of his death. We end there for today, our reading of uh, God's word. Our, our ancient brothers and sisters lost the city of Jerusalem. We're talking about huge loss. Our passage describes the loss of its king, its officials, the royal houses, the temple, the people except for a few exiles and even the promised land. A total loss. And yet, the exiles still have a solid basis for hope solely because of God's new covenant promises in the book of Jeremiah. The seed form, we're all the way back in chapter 1, and the fuller expression, chapters 31 to 33, as we've studied. It brings us to our main point for today. God provides us with hope despite loss by reminding us of the fulfillment of his words of judgment, chapter 1, verse 10, and in in the fall of Jerusalem, which proves that we can trust his words of restoration. If it's true about judgment, it's true about restoration. So we'll see more about that in a moment. First, I want to explain four reasons why the chapter 52 exists. Look at chapter 51, verse 64. The very last words. The last four words of chapter 51. The words of Jeremiah. What they're saying is, these are the last words of Jeremiah. So why is there exist a chapter 52? There's four reasons. Number one, to provide closure to our understanding and study of the story. Yes, the preaching ministry of the preacher Jeremiah was done. It lasted only 40 years, but the time span of these events is longer than that, more like 67 years. So the preaching of Jeremiah can very dramatically end with what we studied last time, that rock tied to the scroll of God's word, uh, sinking to the bottom of the river, and he saying, thus shall Babylon sink to rise no more. That, that whole thing can be the dramatic end to Jeremiah's preaching ministry. It is. But we cannot end the report there because the story of God's people don't, doesn't end there. Down went Babylon. But what about the exiles? 
What about Jerusalem? What about the promises to rebuild? How did that all end? So chapter 52 provides that closure. Second reason for chapter 52 to exist provided context for the other book that Jeremiah wrote, Lamentations, as I mentioned. This chapter is a necessary and excellent bridge from our study of the book of Jeremiah to our study of the book of Lamentations. We're slowing down a bit to absorb this chapter so that we can understand what's next. These sad songs of Jeremiah's weeping and grief over the fall of Jerusalem. When you see someone crying, don't you say, why are you crying? When we hear that Jeremiah is described as the weeping prophet, don't we automatically want to know why is he called the weeping prophet? What's he crying about? Chapter 52 gives us an immediate quick understanding of why he would be weeping. Second reason. So the third reason, chapter 52, proved that Jeremiah was a true prophet because the reporting on the preaching of Jeremiah ended, but now it must be shown whether it was true preaching or not, true prophecy or not. Remember the criteria that God has for a true prophet stated in Deuteronomy 18, verse 22, that if the prophet predicts some future event, the event has to come true in order for that to be a true prophet. Well, Jeremiah predicted the loss of Jerusalem and exiles going away. That has to be shown to be true in real history in order for Jeremiah's words to be believed at all. So chapter 52 proves that this historically actually happened. In fact, the words that we're reading here at Jeremiah 52 very closely resemble the words in the history of God's word in 2 Kings 25, reporting factual events. So this is all here to prove that Jeremiah is in fact a true prophet. What he predicted came true. The third reason why chapter 52 exists, is to show the change in the basic relationship between God and his people. It's now becoming a new covenant that's spiritual in nature and no longer the statehood of a nation. It's transitioning. And by Jeremiah's preaching, the wrong things for Israel to trust must have been torn down. And then in real time, with the destruction, they lost, actually lost, the things they had overconfidence in being God's chosen people, showing that their trust was not nationalistic. God sent Nebuchadnezzar to demolish the physical realities of the nation, the king, the law, the temple, and even drive them out of the city and even drive them out of the promised land. There's nothing left for them to consider themselves God's nation. No city, no temple, no royal palace, no army, and above all, no holy land. In what way could they still conceive of themselves as being Israel a nation? Chapter 52 shows they could lose their nation in that way and still be considered God's people, prefiguring God's new covenant relationship with his people in the new covenant, which becomes the church, and even in heaven, the new Jerusalem, where our citizenship already is. So that's a fourth reason why chapter 52 exists. But we're slowing down. We're just going to look at verses 1 through 11 today with these uh, three points and then a fourth to tie it together. The loss of personal holiness, the loss of God's presence, the loss of the king, and then those things being restored in point four. So verse one, loss of personal holiness. The account begins with the destruction of Jerusalem with the coronation of the starting off of the king named Zedekiah. Don't be thrown off by the mention of a different Jeremiah in verse one. Our prophet is named Jeremiah from Anathoth. But verse one is basically this king's grandpa, who was a Jeremiah from Libna. We even have many Jeremiahs in our lives today, don't we? You have several Bens, several Jeremiahs, and whatever your name is, I'm sure you've met somebody else with your name, right? So 
This is not a problem. Don't be tripped up by verse 1. Enough said. Verse 2 told, told, tells us how we lost Jerusalem was just like how we lost the Garden of Eden. It began with Adam losing personal holiness. King Zedekiah lost personal holiness. In case you wonder whether Zedekiah was really that bad, there's a direct quote of verse 2 which actually says what Zedekiah did and according to whom. Listen carefully. He did evil in the sight of the Lord. That's case closed. I mean, it's God's assessment that he's evil, okay? Verse, three, uh, verse 2 then breaks out and continues on because the book of Jeremiah, remember, is organized to make Jeremiah's points and not organized strictly in a chronological timeline. This King Zedekiah might sound familiar to you. We already studied him way back in chapters 34, 37, and 38. And we learned that one way he was evil was by being unstable, it was the king, remember, who let slaves go, but then enslaved them all over again. If you want to read back, it's Jeremiah chapter 34, verse 8, verse 16, and verse 21. Now, I want to tell you how Zedekiah became king because it's important for the story. I'm going to ask for your special attention in about the next nine sentences, and you've got to start listening right away or you're going to be lost. I think I can clear it up for you, but I'm telling you ahead of time, it's a bit complicated. Let's do this. I've simplified it as much as I possibly can. How did Zedekiah become king? I'm going back to the point in time you need to know. Before Zedekiah, there was a prior bad king in Jerusalem named Jehoiakim who rebelled against the occupying forces of Babylon. Babylon wanted to put down the rebellion. By the time Babylon's representatives arrived in Jerusalem to put down the rebellion of the bad king in Jerusalem, that bad king had already been replaced by his own son, another bad king named Jehoiachin. Chin. So Babylon put down the rebellion and took the younger king, Jehoiachin, off into Babylon into exile. However, Babylon still wanted a local king to be what they call a vassal king to rule over the Jews on site within the city of Jerusalem to keep the Jews obedient to the occupying force of Babylon. So Babylon then decided to put on that Jerusalem throne the uncle of Jehoiachin, off in exile. Now guess who the uncle was? Zedekiah. You can slow down your listening intensity now. That was the hard part. That Zedekiah, you got it. Either got it or you didn't. Zedekiah, that's how he became king. Babylon apparently thought that Zedekiah would cooperate with Babylon. Well, how did that work out? First look at verse 1. Zedekiah is 21 years old when he became king. Young, but not necessarily bad in and of itself. We continue reading in verse 1, Zedekiah reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. Okay, from when he was 21 to when he's 32, he's reigning. Okay, went okay for a while, it seems like. Lastly, now look at the start of the next paragraph, just before verse 4. See that? Where we read the start of the problem. And Zedekiah rebelled against the king of Babylon. Oops. 11 years later, Babylon's back to the same problem. Whatever the close local king, vassal king is over in Jerusalem is rebelling against us again. So Zedekiah, 11 years into his kingship, turned out to be just like Jerusalem's recent king, Jehoiakim. Both Jehoiakim earlier and Zedekiah, 11 years later, rebelled against the king of Babylon. So Jehoiakim and later Zedekiah had another thing in common. They were both evil. Let me say, who are you to say that, Ben? Look at verse 2. Zedekiah did evil in the sight of the Lord, comma, according to all that Jehoiakim had done. 
the king 11 years earlier? We have it in Scripture. It's not from Ben. It's from Scripture. So we know that Zedekiah was not consistent in following the Lord. Already way back in chapter 21, you might remember, our prophet Jeremiah was not pleased with this king Zedekiah's policies. And the reason was just so clear. Because the Lord was not pleased with the policies of king Zedekiah. So Jeremiah is explaining God's verdict. That's point one. Point two is loss of God's presence. We just sang about that in our hymn, Great is Thy Faithfulness. Thy, thy presence with us is something we, we value as precious. And when we read that the Lord cast them out from his presence in verse three, it reads synonymously with Babylon taking them captive. Now, we will study next time, Lord willing, verses 12 through 23 about the destruction of the temple itself. The temple represented the presence of the Lord, but we're not told in verse 3 that the Lord cast them out of the temple. We're told in verse 3 that he cast them out of his presence. Why is that clearly stated here? We're told in verse 3 it's because the anger of the Lord had been ignored for so long by the people that it finally reached a point when God decided it was necessary to cast them out. Does that remind you of a story anywhere? Adam and Eve enjoying the presence of the Lord in the garden without sin. And what happened? Genesis 3, 6 of the forbidden fruit she ate and then he ate. And then just two verses later, it stands out to us what God told us what happened next. Genesis 3, 8, they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from what? Hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. And then Genesis 3.23 says the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden. We're supposed to be reminded of that in our verse 3. What we lost in the very first sin by the very first human leader is just exactly what we lost here in the sin of this king now, King Zedekiah. We lost the presence of God when his anger came to that point to cast them out. That's our second point. Our third point, the loss of the king. Verse 3. I'm sorry, uh, yeah, verse 3 had told us that Zedekiah rebelled against the king of Babylon, remember? The result, how well does that go? The king of Babylon ordered his army to surround the city of Jerusalem and not allow anyone to go in or go out. That's what siege means. They blocked off the city of Jerusalem in order to starve them out, and they continued to blockade for 18 months. How do I know that? Verse 4, the start was during the ninth year of his reign. Verse 5, it lasted till the 11th year of his reign. It even gives the month. I'm sparing you the math. It's 18 months, okay? It's unlikely that Nebuchadnezzar himself stayed there the whole time. It's boring work. Why would the king of all of Babylon sit around the walls? He went back home and just waited out. Let me know when something's happening. It's boring work being a big circle around Jerusalem waiting for their food supply to slowly dwindle. Verse 6, the blockade around Jerusalem finally reached the desired effect when the city eventually ran out of food, putting them in jeopardy. And some of the suffering results from the lack of food is described by Jeremiah in his other book, Book of Lamentations, chapters 2 and 4. I'll read a quote in a moment, but continuing here in verse 7, the food shortage resulted in food weakness, which brought to stage 2, because this is all Babylon's war tactic. It was this moment when Babylon broke through the city wall of Jerusalem on purpose, while the people in the weakened condition were unable to defend their city walls. So here's Jerusalem's starving soldiers. Babylon's breaking through the walls. What do they do? Well, they're so depleted they couldn't fight effectively and protect their walls, but apparently they had enough energy to run. Uh, verse 7 showed they found an opening in the Babylonian circle around the city and managed to slip out somehow near the king's garden. Hmm. 
They ran away by night, uh, fled for their lives toward the Arabah, which is another dry desert place to the east, maybe hoping to search for them there. Verse 8 revealed that guess who was in the group of runaway soldiers. None other than our king Zedekiah himself. Jeremiah reflects on this later. This is my quote from Lamentations 4, verse 9. Happier were the victims of the sword than the victims of hunger who wasted away, pierced by lack of the fruits of the fields. The hands of the compassionate women have boiled their own children. They became their food during the destruction of the daughter of my people. I'm not apologizing for God's word. This is meant to describe to us the extremity of the situation and the legitimacy of the lament. But the Babylonians chased, and they caught up with running, fleeing King Zedekiah in the plains of Jericho, which simply tells us they hadn't reached the Jordan River to cross it to safety. We're told not about their full escape plan or their potential destination. We don't know where they thought they could be headed, but we're only told that they could not reach safety because the Babylonians overtook Zedekiah and all his hungry army was scattered from him, scattered from the king. No one stood by their evil king to defend him from the evil enemy. Verse 9 showed that Babylon did not execute Zedekiah on the spot, as you might predict, but instead took some interest in him. If you're the king of all Babylon, every time you conquer something, you have their king sitting around the table with you and you just remind them, I overtake you, I control you, I overpower you, I'm, I'm over you. And you remind the whole country that you, your power over all the kings of all the other nations, right? So he's going to be this little fun toy, right? Since Babylon is now overtaking the city of Jerusalem, they also took an interest in the family of Zedekiah and the officials of Zedekiah. His army had scattered, but his family and his nobles were being gathered. Oh, isn't that nice? They're being gathered. King of Babylon's now back on the scene. We're told in verse 9 that Zedekiah was taken to the location where the king of Babylon was. This would be Nebuchadnezzar. An ancient preferred army staging area, a place called Riblah in the land of Hamath, we're told in verse 9, which today is Syria in the Middle East. It's also, coincidentally, at Riblah that the pharaoh of Egypt had taken a king from Jerusalem, 2 Kings 23.33. So a story about Egypt matches the story about Babylon here. The king of Zedekiah was taken there to see Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon. Does that remind you of anything? It's supposed to remind us of the exact fulfillment of God's prediction in Jeremiah 34, verse 3, where God said to this king Zedekiah, quote, You shall surely be captured and delivered into his hand. You shall see the king of Babylon eye to eye and speak with him face to face, and you shall go down to Babylon. End quote, Jeremiah 34, 3. That's what it's supposed to remind us of, because it's sounding awfully familiar. And we're seeing that prophecy fulfilled here in chapter 52, verse 9, where we read that the king of Babylon passed sentence on King Zedekiah. What a moment! What a statement! The evil king of the evil empire Babylon passes sentence on the evil king of Judah, God's king, God's people. What a moment. What a statement. Verse 10 reported that it was right there in Riblah, that town, that staging area, that the Babylonians slaughtered the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes. Remember his eyes, were mentioning his eyes again and again, and then slaughtered all the king's officials. There goes his family, there's those officials. It's just him, King Zedekiah. And then the cruel Babylonians blinded him. But it's significant. Verse 10, the eyes of Zedekiah are mentioned as watching the slaughter of his sons. And verse 11, the eyes of Zedekiah are mentioned as being put out. 
we are supposed to conclude, obviously, that the very last thing Zedekiah saw with his eyes, besides locking eyes with Nebuchadnezzar, was to watch the slaughter of all of his sons by the Babylonians. But Zedekiah himself was still not killed. Verse 11, what happens? They bind Zedekiah in chains, and the king of Babylon took Zedekiah to Babylon, where he was in prison until his death. What's the conclusion? What is this all about? By verse 11, these 11 verses tell us Zedekiah lost his throne, he lost his freedom, he lost his posterity, he lost his, his sight, he eventually lost his life. Whatever interest he may have once had in the Lord God, he lost that a long time ago too. The loss of the king leaves us needing a king. But apparently, not a king who would be a leader of a statehood such as a nation. God's faithfulness in bringing judgment shows that he will also be faithful in bringing his promised restoration, but it might look different than it used to look for God to gather his people. The exiles know that God will restore but they have to know that God will restore in the way that God will restore. It's prophecies towards something new. That brings us to our fourth point. Despite the losses, the exiles retained a living hope because the promised sequel, the restoration of holiness, the restoration of God's own presence, and the restoration of the kingship. We could read here that the wrath of God on Jerusalem was completed. However, as God's word in the book of Ezra and the book of Nehemiah demonstrate, even though the Lord's wrath did come climactically upon Jerusalem here in the time of the exile, his wrath continued upon the people even after their return from Babylon. For example, give one example from Nehemiah 13 verse 18. Did not your fathers act in this way? And did not our God bring all this disaster on us and on this city? Listen, now you are bringing more wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath, end quote, Nehemiah 13, verse 18. Not until the future death of the true Israel, even Jesus Christ, was the Lord's wrath against his people completely exhausted and propitiated. Romans 3.25, God put Jesus Christ forward as a propitiation. It's a big word that simply means a protective covering like a shield. God put Jesus Christ forward as a propitiation or shield by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins, Romans 3.25. How can Jesus shield us from God's wrath? Only one way. Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who's hanged on a tree, Galatians 3.13. Jesus Christ brought the entire book of Jeremiah to maximum fulfillment. He promised to send and then did send his son to die for us, showing God was faithful to all he said he would do. Romans 8.32, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Since we get Christ the Son of God, in him we get everything. In Jeremiah, God demonstrated the inability of the old covenant to overcome the power of sin. How often did the prophets say to the people, knock it off, repent, turn around, please turn to God. In God's gracious and redemptive purpose, he ordained his judgments to land on Christ so he might establish a new and better order. The wrecking ball needed to come to first clear away the old building. And in Jesus' death, the old covenant order came to an end. 
Ephesians 2, 14, Christ himself is our peace who has made both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by, listen, abolishing the law of commandments expressed in the ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross. Ephesians 2, 14 to 15. Since the old covenant is abolished, there's room for a new covenant. Hebrews 8, 13, and speaking of a new covenant, God makes the first one obsolete and what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. And now, through Christ's resurrection, the gift of the Holy Spirit, a new building is going up in the place of the old. But is it a new Israel? Not in the political way in the Middle East. God has established through Jesus Christ the new and better covenant which has better promises. Hebrews 8, 6, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. In place of the Old Testament prophets and kings, Christ calls New Testament ministers, and listen to how the apostle explained in 2 Corinthians 3, 6, Christ has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, which means that in place of that cup of wrath for us to drink from God, We get a new covenant cup of mercy instead and blessings in the wine of the Lord's Supper. Luke 22, 20, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. We were like Adam. We were like Zedekiah, stuck in our sins, rebelling against God. And one of the new covenant promises in the new Adam and our true King Jesus is that everyone who believes in Christ will be freed from their bondage to sin. Romans 6, 14, sin will no longer have dominion over you since you're not under law but under grace. And Romans 6.18, having been set free from sin, you have become slaves of righteousness. God has accomplished all that is necessary for permanent union and communion with his people. No more loss of king. We have a king. Unassailable. No more loss of land. We have a home in heaven. No more loss of temple. Our temple is Jesus, and even the whole church becomes the temple, the place where God dwells and where we worship. No more loss of our city, for our heavenly city is there, our home. We're safe from evil Babylon, safe from the evil of our own personal loss of holiness. We were exiled and restored because in Christ we were exiled in his death and in Christ's resurrection we were restored. God's word can be trusted in times of loss and we can hope in him through Christ. We can rejoice in having received so great a salvation. Through faith in Christ we have the joy of living in a new covenant. We walk in righteousness with the very law of God written on our hearts, we hope despite loss. That's our message. I have two application points. Number one, keep your new covenant hope glasses on as you look around at loss. Keep your new covenant hope glasses on as you look around at loss. Maybe you're discouraged with how the country has declined in the last 20 years like I am. We look at this like Christians. We look at this with new covenant hope glasses. Jeremiah 52 shares a crucial point of Old Testament truth that we need for our hope glasses. Jeremiah looked around and saw in his day Jerusalem destroyed and Babylon triumphant. But if he put on his new covenant hope glasses, he could look around and see that the day of reversal is coming, a day of judgment in which Babylon would be destroyed and simultaneously a day of salvation in which Jerusalem would be rescued and triumphant. 
Those same New Covenant hope glasses enabled Jeremiah to look down the road into the future and picture Christ's reversal from death to life in his resurrection. The same New Covenant hope glasses enabled the Apostle John to envision God's day of victory and write down a huge picture for us in the book of Revelation, chapters 18 and following, of Babylon destroyed and Jerusalem victorious. Does that sound familiar? That's exactly the story of Jeremiah. Babylon became the Bible's symbolic name for evil in all generations that sets itself against God and his people. Meanwhile, Jerusalem became the Bible's symbolic name for God's new covenant people, which now is the church of Jesus Christ. It's not some real estate in the Middle East. The message of Jerusalem is the only message that it can overcome this world's evil. That's how Paul could write in Romans 12, 21. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. It was not finding one statehood, not finding one nation, even under God, in which we could place our hope. That's a false idol. The new covenant hope glasses are not focused on some earthly nation anywhere in any generation. Let us learn the same lesson that our ancient brothers and sisters have learned. The new covenant hope glasses are focused on the restoration that God provides for his people in his New Testament church by Christ through his word and spirit. Paul wrote in Galatians that we are the Israel of God. The story of Israel is our story as the church. Ephesians 2, 12, remember that you were at one time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Ephesians 2, 12 and 13, new covenant fulfillment is in the Christian church, not in the Christian nation. Galatians 6, 16, peace and mercy be upon the Israel of God. Keep your new covenant hope glasses on as you look around at loss. And number two, my second and last application to us, be encouraged that God's spirit is present with us now. Remember how we talked about in verse three that he cast them out of his presence? We have his presence by his spirit. We the church are the sanctuary of God. How's that? The spirit of God dwells in each heart of each believer and it dwells in us as we together gather and worship. There's so much more here. First Peter 2, 9, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. First Peter 2, 9 and 10. We're the sanctuary of God. Of course we have his presence. We, God dwells here by his spirit. Invocation prayer at the start of each of our worship services, invoking, inviting down, praying down, having God bless us through the presence of his Holy Spirit. That's the presence of God, the Holy Spirit. We're also the place where God rules over us as king and in his kingdom. He's the head shepherd of his church, the fold of God. Just as the people in the desert, after they were called out of Egypt, was a time of God providing wonderfully for them, so also we, the people of God, traveling through the wilderness of this world, after we're called out of slavery to sin by the cross and resurrection of Christ, enjoy a time of God providing wonderfully us with us, with his presence with us. The best thing that guides us is that God provides his own dear presence by his spirit to cheer us. He did not give us his son only to crumble and die partway through our journey to heaven. 
Romans 8, 32, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also graciously give you all things? He, if he gives you his son, he will give forgiveness to you, he will give his spirit to you, yes, he will give his presence to you, he gives his love to you. Nothing can cast you out of God's presence. That's all taken care of by the death and resurrection of Christ. You can't just read chapter 52, translate it to your life. We run it through the cross of Christ to understand it. The wrath of God at the cross and the empty tomb secures this. So while you're on exile on earth, keep in front of yourself these words. I close with this, Romans 8, 35. What shall separate us from the love of Christ? We could think the presence of God. Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we're being killed all the day long. We're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Romans 8, 35 to 38. May this be worked in for the comfort of our hearts.